Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on July 28, 2021, at the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. In this podcast, we welcome Dr. George Bajalia and Ms. Aida Alami in a humane festival conversation on the roots and traces of contemporary cultural life in Tangier. George Bajalia is an anthropologist, assistant professor at Wesleyan University, and theater director based between Morocco and New York. He is the co-founder of the annual Humane Creative Media Festival in Tangier, Morocco, and the Northwestern University in Qatar Creative Media Festival. His work has been supported by the Keyork Mellon Mediterranean Research Fellowship, the American Institute of Maghreb Studies Long-Term Fellowship, and the Fulbright Foundation. And he is a fellow of the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies. Aida Alami is a Moroccan freelance journalist who is frequently on the road, reporting from North Africa, France, the Caribbean, and more recently, Senegal. She regularly contributes to the New York Times, and her work has also been published by the New York Review of Books, the Financial Times, and Foreign Policy. She earned her bachelor's degree in media studies at Hunter College and her master's degree in journalism at Columbia University. She mainly covers migration, human rights, religion, politics, and racism. These days, Aida spends a lot of time in France, where she is directing a documentary feature on anti-racism activists and police violence. All right, hi, I am George Bajalia. I'm an anthropologist, professor of anthropology at Wesleyan University in Connecticut, fellow of the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies, and the co-founder of the Humane Festival. Hi, I'm Aida Alami. I'm a freelance journalist. I'm from Marrakesh, and I'm in Tangier with George. <laughs> and we are here to talk a little bit about an ongoing conversation between us, I think, on different subjects. Earlier today, as a part of the Humane Festival discussion, we talked a little bit about migration and borders, especially around northern Morocco, but also in general, which is one of my research subjects as an anthropologist and one of Aida's beats as a journalist. And so I think we have a lot to talk about with that. Maybe we can share some of that together. I'll just briefly introduce the Humane Festival, I think, um, and its context within this year's 200-year anniversary of Moroccan-American relations, friendship. So the Humane Festival, in many ways, actually is a Moroccan-American project that I started with Tom Casserly and Zakaria Alilesh and that rooster <laughs> that maybe you can hear uh, in 2015. And the Humane Festival, originally, the idea is that it's 48 hours and we gather artists, generally young, early career Moroccan artists, as well as people from other parts of the Mediterranean, sometimes Europe, Middle East, and other parts of North and West Africa, to create new work over the course of 48 hours centered on a common theme. So in the past, our themes have ranged from, let's see, in 2015, the theme was Barzakh, which means something sort of similar to limbo, although it has a different meaning in the context of migration. And the second year's theme was crisis, or asthma in Arabic. The third year was imitation, taqlid. The fourth year was limits, al-head, mixed a bit between singular and plural. And the fifth year was desire, raqaba. 
Uh, and this year it's Roots and Traces, Jadur wa Athar, which is sort of a reflective, retrospective process, looking at the themes of the past few years in order to reflect maybe differently on Tangier. The festival is always about thinking about Tangier as a sort of border city from these different angles. And I think especially in the context of this 200-year anniversary of the American legation, um, it's interesting to look back at Tangier across these different themes, perhaps. So I know I was just speaking a lot, but um, maybe I'll put a question to Aida, if that's okay. So what brought you into sort of the focus that you have on borders? And is it a focus on borders or a focus on migration? They kind of happened naturally. Uh, I didn't decide to go into this beat. When I started being on the ground, it was during the Arab Spring in 2011, and I was roaming a little bit around the region, covering the protests and so on. And eventually we started seeing a lot of refugees coming out of Syria into Europe and into other countries like Jordan and so on. And my first experience doing border stories were out of Jordan or out of uh, Tunisia, for example, for people coming from Libya. And I just started paying more attention to this. And then I started reporting in Europe and reporting also on second and third generation of immigrants from North Africa. And then my work took me to the Caribbean where I was between the Haitian and Dominican borders. And that kind of happened naturally. And I started being really interested in, in movement around borders. And then automatically you start talking about migration stories. And, and I really tried to make my reporting not so much about numbers and trends, but to humanize the issues. And as you know, and you've researched migration and borders for so long, there are people that resist to the violence. There are people that are change makers. There are people who you have all these individuals that collectively do things that governments have failed to do. And I was very interested early on in all this work on migration about who are these individuals that have such a huge impact. For instance, in Morocco, I profiled a young man from Western Africa who identifies dead bodies and organizes the burials. Or I met a priest in the Dominican Republic who takes care of Haitian children who are crossing alone and find themselves in the Dominican Republic. They don't have money. They don't know anybody. They don't speak the language. And that's kind of what I've been doing all these years. And I think one of the most important issues in the time we live in are climate and migration. And climate's going to make borders even more complicated in the future. And that's something I definitely want to keep paying attention to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I see a lot of resonance with some of my own interests there, too. I mean, the first time I came to Morocco was 2010, and I was just here for, you know, a few months in Tangier. Uh, and then I came back in 2011 in the context of a Fulbright student grant. And so I lived here from 2011 to 2013, which was sort of a paradigm shift moment, both in terms of the events happening, but also in terms of forging certain interests in different themes. You see something happening around you, and you think, there's something here that I'm going to pay attention to and try to understand in a particular way. And for me, that turned into this question about waiting, right? What does it mean to wait at a border? In terms of waiting in a border line, sure, and that's part of my own research and thinking specifically about Suta, Subta, and the forms of social, political, cultural life that emerged during that time spent waiting in that border line, but also in a border city, right? And like the person that you profiled, I think in 
Nador, maybe? Yes, yeah, yes. Who identifies dead bodies, right? I mean, it's an awful work, but it's a work that emerges out of the time that people spend ostensibly doing the action of crossing a border. And yet mm -hmm. we know that crossing the border isn't actually just going through. It's the days, months, years that lead up to it and after it, right? Uh, exactly. I mean, when I think about this guy who got into this job without any training or anything, that in life, there was nothing in his life that led to this really other than coming to Morocco. He didn't actually come here to cross to Europe. He came here because he had some difficulties back home for political reasons. So he just wanted to be in Morocco and chill for a few months and go back home. And spending time in Nador, he realized that there was no one doing that. Mm. And that a lot of families were not getting closure. So someone would depart for Morocco on their way to Europe, and then they would just vanish. Mm -hmm. And then he did it, which is what you were saying. is like these kind of individuals emerge and their mission emerges out of necessity. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of a story someone I know here in Tangier, an older man, actually a Christian pastor, right? And he came here, yes, to go to Europe, but started seeing that actually he needed to do something here. There were a lot of young immigrants, I think often men in his case, who were here and weren't sure what to do with the difficulty of what it means to live as a migrant or an immigrant here. And so he decided to stay. It was a little bit difficult first in this neighborhood in the suburbs of Tangier where he was ministering because people thought he was proselytizing, right? People thought he was evangelizing, which is not what he was doing. Mm -hmm. He was ministering to a in-need Christian population, right? And so half of his family left and went to Europe. The other half stayed with him here. And then a church in Ivory Coast sent him to young men, disciples, acolytes, whatever it is, to help him in that ministry. Right? Which is something that emerged out of this time that he spent waiting to go across the border ended up meaning, in fact, I have to stay here, right? And I wow. think that's the kind of story that, to me at least, is often ignored, right? We just put this time into parentheses, and we say, oh, well, they're just waiting. Right? Yeah, exactly. But, they're waiting. Waiting for what? What are they doing while they're exactly. waiting? What happens while they're waiting? And do we only consider it migration once a European border is crossed? Exactly. You know, and because lots of borders have been crossed to, to get here, both within Morocco, and you have Moroccan immigrants from different parts of Morocco to these neighborhoods as well. I mean, there's a lot going on beyond the sort of spectacular stories that circulate very easily as sound bites and, you know, snapshots of things, but aren't the sort of deep stories that I think we're trying to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I mean, I'd be interested in what you think about this, because it's something that I've heard, especially in the context of the Humane Festival. We often have artist participants who are immigrants to Morocco, right? And maybe they came as migrants. You can't see me in the podcast, but I'm doing air quotes, scare quotes, migrants, right? <laughs> um, because I think it's a very reductive way to talk about someone who may be an immigrant, may be a worker, may be a parent, you know, all these other things. Anyway, um, immigrant artists who talk about Tangier in this interesting way, right? And here we are sitting in the Tangier American Legation. So I think it's an appropriate place to have the discussion. There's a myth of this international Tangier, right? And the international artists of the world who've been here. But that isn't inclusive of these types of artists, Absolutely, right? Yeah. The, the myth of these international artists who, of course, were here, you know, but we look back towards an era and say, oh, that was international Tangier. I think Tangier is incredibly international right now. I completely agree. Yeah. Mm. I mean, do you see that? Of course. I mean, it, it has a vibe that's different from the rest of the country. It has this feel, this border feel. I agree with you in the sense that I think it still today has that feel. It's not 
just because the way Tangier is spoken about, it's like we had a time when that's what Tangier was, and mm. now that's it. It's over. Now it's all Moroccan or something like that. Right now it's yeah. just that. Because yeah. we don't have famous American writers. Right. Uh, you know, like we used to or something like that. So it doesn't count anymore. Right. But, you know, <laughs> a, a young Cameroonian photographer or novelist or a dancer from Ivory Coast are as much a part of the richness of international Tangier. So... When we talk about international Tangier so often, I think that that history gets whitened. And, you know, if we think about present day Tangier, I think it's very international. In fact, but I also think it's a black international. And I think it's interesting and maybe we can sort of think about how that's perhaps always been a part of the story, but doesn't get talked about as much. People like Claude McKay, people like Archie Shep, like Randy Weston are as much a part of this story as the sort of white American writers who have their own sort of galleries. Here, no, exactly. Instance. I mean, even every time you read an article in English about Tangier, how often do you read the name Paul Bowles, Randy Weston or mm. Archie Shep? I mean... Well, it's interesting that you mention, you know, you see these articles about Tangier and you always see the same names, right? And it is really a genre, right? Mm. It's the genre of this sort of pop exotica of 24 hours in Tangier, 48 hours in Tangier. Um, It feels so cliche too and so repetitive. It's cliche, it's repetitive, and it's the same people. But that doesn't include places like Darugnawa, for instance, which you're working on a piece about, I think. Yeah, I'm writing a piece about Darugnawa, which is the cultural center that's close to the American legation where we are right now. The owner is a musician. His name is Abdullah El-Gurt. He's 75 uh, years old. He grew up in that house. He's the first musician to have collaborated with jazz musicians like Randy Weston and all these folks who came through Tangier. But not only, he also went to the U.S. and toured the world with them and was nominated to the Grammy Awards and everything. And what got me interested in the story, so a friend is knew about the story, told me about it. And what caught my interest is the fact that this artist who's such a gem, who's so precious in terms of the country's patrimony and everything about Tangier, everything about Morocco and everything, he's part of all of that, but he's so neglected and so vulnerable. I didn't explain that his house needs major restoration work and he hasn't been living in his house and this whole center that's not just about the architecture and the walls, but it's about the history of the place and all the jam sessions that took place in this house and how it offers for the place for a lot of Gnawi musicians from the region to come and learn and practice and meet other musicians. And my story is about how this place needs to be saved and the legacy of this musician and of this house need to be preserved. But this musician is also powerful because he has international connections and he can get journalists to come and write about him. But you have a lot of other artists in Morocco and in Tangier who don't have the same connections and don't get the same kind of attention. And as you said, it's like Tangier has had like 10 American writers, and that's it. That's everyone who's ever been through the city, and no one else matters. And yet, not only, obviously, were there a lot more than that, but there continue to be, right? I mean, that's part of the story, too. I mean, this isn't my field, really, honestly. Talk about preservation, but it's always a question I have about preservation. And I think it's maybe the sort of colonial baggage of anthropology that makes me think about this, too, is that I worry when we talk about preservation that it means putting something into a glass box, Right, never to be interacted with again. And the reason I say that's sort of anthropology's colonial baggage is because in some ways that's what anthropology did to culture, right? Anthropology said, okay, this is culture. We'll put it in a book. We'll write it in the present tense. 70 years from now, you'll read it and you'll still think that's the present tense. 
and then we'll put it into a museum. And it doesn't allow for cultural change, doesn't allow for interference, for innovation, for imitation. I mean, that's what culture actually is, right? It's not something static in a box. Right, right. It's not something that can be preserved as such, because if you preserve something as such, you don't allow for anything new to come into it. And that is actually at the origin what gives life to so many cultural forms, whether it's the musical heritage of Morocco, the performance, even culinary heritage, right? I mean, it's like these things aren't static. They change and they move. And I think that the American legation is an interesting example of preservation because it's not that. It is a place that is preserved, sure, and should be preserved in various different ways. And yet it's also become an inclusive cultural community space, not only for the neighborhood that it's located in, Benedir and and the Medina, but also young artists in Tangier. Performers, visual artists, there's literacy classrooms here. I mean, it is a space that makes sense. And these days, especially, has a door that's open, not a glass box that's closed that you can look at from the outside, but you can't actually interact with. And I think that's the thing that, I don't know, I wonder what preservation means more broadly here sometimes, because I worry that it will sort Yeah, of... yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And also, what it also means is... Uh, I don't know if you agree, but it also means gentrification and kind of losing the soul of a lot of things, mm-hmm. which is a concern for many about... I mean, all the renovation that's taking place in Tangier is necessary, not just for preservation, but just for safety reasons. Absolutely. So they need to work on these buildings and things like that. But what does it mean for the locals? Uh, there's always this risk of them being pushed out because the Medina becomes so nice. And that's why I wanted to write about Darknawa because this is a local artist who grew up in the Medina, who never left the Medina except for his tours. And how does his story kind of fit in into the story of the town? Yeah, and I think that's a great way of thinking about what's happening right now, too, right? And I've had this conversation recently because, well, I've been back in Tangier after not having been here for about a year and a half during the pandemic, and so I'm back, and there's a lot of changes, especially in the Medina. One of them that's very noticeable that a number of people complain about are the doors, right? These very standardized wooden doors that have replaced all of the eclectic doors throughout the Medina. And I think it's interesting, right? I'm trying to sort of think about why is that bothersome. I think because it looks so sanitized. It looks sanitized. And what I've come up with, I think, is that, I mean, after discussing with friends of mine who are from here, is the doors in the Medina in some way reflected the sort of eclecticism of Tangier's cultural life, right? Whether it's like a piece of metal that was like pulled off of a Portuguese factory and then put here, or this part of the Medina had more Spanish people in it. And so there's a Spanish company in the 1930s that installed the doors there. You know, that was the way that the sort of Medina looked, right? And then to remove that and replace the doors with this sanitized wooden um, national version. Yeah, it changes the material environment, the ambient environment, the way that it feels. And, you know, it's not to say that things can't change. I think they can change. I think they inevitably will change. But it's that change in particular seems to bother people who have an attachment to the Tangier that is a amalgamation of different materialities, of different layers. Actually, I really like the way, I think it's Hisham Aidi quoting Juan Goitisolo, 
I'm going to try to give credit here, and maybe we can put the link to this article with the podcast. A palimpsest of culture, right? So there's just layers upon layers. And like on this point, there's a little bit of Portuguese culture that sticks up and pokes through. And here there's some Spanish that pokes through. And here you're walking and then you fall into a hole. And all of a sudden, you know, you're like, whoa, like what what kind of culture is this? Right? (laughs) It's it's that layering but it's not a neat, smooth layering. It's a layering with different sort of layers and ups and downs and spikes and holes. And you never quite know where you're going to land, except that it's Tangier. Uh, And now I'm in danger of romanticizing things a little bit too much. Yeah, but it's also (laughs) what makes the city so interesting. Uh, You know, like a lot of people don't really know Tangier. They just stop here on their way to Europe or even uh, I know a lot of Moroccans have never really experienced Tangier. But I feel like it's a city that you have to deserve in a way to Mm. like know it. Uh, it takes time. It doesn't give you a comfortable experience just like that. Right. I mean, I'm, you have to earn it. And that's kind of why, I, and we talked about this a little bit. Like people who love New York, I think also maybe could love Tangier in a particular way too, right? It's like you know, honestly, the rats don't bother me. Trash doesn't bother <laughs> right, me. Right, <laughs> like right. these things don't bother because, me. Because <laughs> yeah, because my days are so interesting. I'm right. willing to put up with other things. I had this moment and this is, you know, neither here nor there, but I'm just sharing it because I think it's funny. Um, I had just been in Tangier for about two years and I flew back to the US. It was going back to finish my dissertation and like three days after I get to New York, I'm walking through Harlem and there's this guy walking down 125th street and he's pushing a shopping cart and he has a parrot wearing a dog <laughs> leash who's sitting on the shopping cart and the parrot is barking like a dog and the man starts yelling at the parrot and he's like stop barking stop barking you're not a dog <laughs> I was like well this is weird That's I forgot amazing. that this is what this neighborhood was like and at the same time I was also like oh, that could have been in Tangier too yeah. <laughs> no. like the roosters we've been hearing all the entire exactly. time we've it's been like, talking you know it's, it's six in the afternoon why are you growing stop it <laughs> you're not making sense right uh, and yet you know it does make sense yeah um, maybe that's what's nice about it is it doesn't need to make any more sense than the sense it has already um, anyway I did want to bring up another major other topic if you want to talk about it, which is um, you're interested in borders, right? And yet you also sort of straddle a border yourself, which is you're a Moroccan journalist, often writing for publications outside of Morocco, whether it's in the US or Europe, sometimes covering Morocco, sometimes covering other parts of the world. How do you straddle the line of, you know, when you write a piece about Morocco, do you think about it being read in Morocco or elsewhere, or even on your Twitter, for instance? That's a really interesting question that I think I don't ask myself enough. However, I think migration, when it comes to Morocco, has a different mission for me than when I write about other places. Let's say if I'm writing about France or Jordan or whatever, I feel like a lot of journalists have done similar works before or better works and things like that. One thing that I have in mind probably more when I'm in Morocco than elsewhere is that I've been more sensitive to the quality of reporting on migration only because in the local media we've seen a lot of problematic coverage that I'm probably unaware of in other places because I'm not going to be reading the local media as closely as I would here. I mean, it's something you have everywhere. Let's say when I was in the Dominican Republic, you would have on the front page cover things that says the Haitian threat or, you know, like, mm-hmm. or like racist ways of describing Haitians and things like that. So it's not 
particular to Morocco, but I think I'm more sensitive to it because I'm from here. So there is a bigger part of me that is trying to explain to people the human side of the story probably more than in other places. Mm. So I think when in Morocco, I will really keep in mind, like, how do I convince people that they need to treat people from other parts of the continent better? And I'm talking about migration from sub-Saharan Africa. I have that in mind. I don't know if I answered your question, but I think I, I have definitely that in mind when mm-hmm. I'm doing stories. But there's um, something, there's a personal <clears throat> motivation behind the stories when you write yes, about Morocco yes, in a different way. Yes, Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to point towards people or outlets or citizen journalists, bloggers who you think are doing an interesting job of discussing what's going on here. Um, there is Salah Dilmaizi. Do you know him or no? no He's I... fantastic. He's really, I think, the most specialized reporter in Morocco on migration. He's made it his work mission to only report on migration. He also teaches about migration. He goes around journalism schools in Morocco and explains to students. Uh, he's trying to, you know, to push journalism schools to teach migration and include migration in their programs. He trains other journalists. Uh, He's very active and he has a network of other journalists who he's trying to include in this effort. And he and I talk very often and we always have in mind the fact that it's really underreported. Migration stories are so underreported here. All we hear, I mean, let's say you're not someone who's going to actively try to know what's going on. You're going to hear about crime, crossings, debt, uh, I don't know, COVID. Like, that's... Are going to be the migration stories you're going to read about? You're not going to read about the woman who puts flowers on the graves of migrants or the person who, I don't know, started this initiative to, you know, create small businesses or things like that. You don't hear about all of that. Mm. You just hear about the crime and the negative stories. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's so important. And I don't know that it's so much better in places like the US. Um, Maybe there's just more saturation of different outlets. And so you encounter different types of stories. But I mean, that was one of my motivations in my research as well is like, there are so many other stories that need to be told besides, I refer to them as the sort of spectacular moments, right? Exactly. Uh, I mean, spectacular almost in the theoretical sense, right? Is it attracts you because it's a spectacle, Mm. right? Mm. And yet everyday life isn't a spectacle at exactly. all. It's endurance, it's exhaustion, but it's also joy sometimes too. You know? Yeah, you absolutely, absolutely. So I think those are the important, I mean, well, I think it's all important, but at least it's one of my preoccupations. And maybe there's various reasons why I'm preoccupied with this and with waiting and that sort of thing. But in the end, I think it's one of those things that borders produce too, right? Borders aren't going to go away, as you mentioned, and especially in the context of climate change. We're going to have more borders, we're going to have more migration, we're going to have more climate refugees, so maybe we should try to figure out what's going on alongside the spectacular sides of all of this, because it's not going away. It'd be interesting to see where we'll be after 400 years of friendship between the U.S. and Morocco. Yes. (laughs) Maybe even more borders, unfortunately. Yeah. And so, I don't know, maybe we'll leave it there unless you have any closing... No, that's it. Thank you for this interesting conversation. Well, thank you. And thank you to the Tangier American Legation Institute for Moroccan Studies and to all of the team there for all of their help and support, both in the podcast as well as with this year's Humane Festival. We're grateful to them and to the U.S. Embassy for their sponsorship of Aida and I's conversation today during the lecture and also here on the podcast, as well as the American Language Center for their continued support of the Humane Festival. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. 
Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean.